Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I want to get into vaccine passports, condos, and the rise of the right and what Democrats can do. So we've got a lot here. I want to start out here in Oregon. I don't know how it works in your state, but here in Oregon, you can sign up with the state health department. And it's it's very easy to find out. It's on their websites and everything to get a daily little kind of email summary of what the coronavirus situation is in Oregon. And they, they list how many infections have been reported by county throughout the entire state. We had a total of, I think, 83 or 87 yesterday. How many deaths? I think we had no deaths yesterday. All of the the deaths that we're having now are unvaccinated people. They list whether those people had pre-existing conditions, things like that. And yesterday, in this little email that I got from the state of Oregon, they included, because there's all this concern about breakthrough infections, you know, what, what happens if I've been vaccinated and I sit, you know, in a restaurant next to some mask hole who's not vaccinated, who has a fulminating case of COVID and doesn't realize it yet because people are really contagious for a couple of days before they start getting symptoms. You know, what happens if I get, you know, massively exposed to like the Delta variant and it breaks through and I get sick? And people are freaked out about this in Oregon and around the country. And by the way, countries are as well. Israel just announced because of the Delta variant and the most of the country is vaccinated in Israel. They did a really good job of this. One of the best in the world. Israel just announced they're reimposing mask mandates indoors. The United Kingdom just pulled back, you know, Britain just pulled back on some of their openings. Other countries in Europe doing the same thing. So this physician, he's a doc, family doctor, a family physician in Medford, Oregon. His name is Dr. Robert Jackman. And just, you know, a a great guy and 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 you're just a regular doctor. And he was fully vaccinated way back in December and he got a breakthrough infection. And he tells the story of it. This is 42 seconds. And it's actually, it just took my fear away. So let me play this for you. Here it is. Besides being a practicing family physician and one of the first people to be vaccinated here just before uh, Christmas, I'm one of the few breakthrough cases in Oregon. Despite all my precautions, I still became infected. Because of my vaccination though, my experience of COVID-19 was much less severe than most of the patients I've cared for in our isolation unit. My symptoms from COVID-19 only lasted about eight hours and they were not much worse than the very mild and minor side effects I experienced from my second vaccine. I can tell you from firsthand experience the vaccinations work. I also implore you to get vaccinated. So there you go. I mean, you know, just very, very straightforward. He's saying, you've got to get vaccinated. I mean, you got it. It's like, and if you do get vaccinated, you're not going to have these terrible symptoms. So why don't we have vaccine passports? Why can't I go to a restaurant and know that the guy next to me is not going to make me sick? Well, you know, maybe getting sick from the guy next to me is not such a terrible thing. But on the other hand, I'd really rather not get COVID. Wouldn't you? I mean, so, you know, let's have a serious conversation about that. So that's the number one thing I wanted to share with you. The number two thing I wanted to share with you is about condominiums. Louise and I have lived in a number of communities where there were homeowners associations that were basically condoized. We lived in a floating home community that was like that. And we've lived in a couple of other places, you know, one that was uh, duplex condos, another that was housing condos. And here's the scam. And there are a few states, there's about a dozen states that have started doing something about this just in the last couple of years. But most of these condos were built back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, certainly the one that collapsed in Florida. And the developers, when they build a condo, let's say that they're gonna sell the condo for 100,000 bucks. And there's this homeowner's fee that, you know, pays for pool maintenance and lawn maintenance and and in some cases the the siding on the outside of the houses and the roofs need to be replaced every 10 or 20 years and all this kind of stuff but the developers who are selling the condo don't want that fee to be high because 
that reduces the willingness of people to buy the condos, which reduces their profits. So they set a fee of maybe 100 bucks a month or $300 a month or $400 a month or whatever it may be. I know one of the condos that we lived in, it had started at like $30 a month and it was up to 400 when we left. And we left, frankly, because the board was so dysfunctional. They were not doing what they needed to do in terms of maintenance. So the developer sells the condos at let's say 100 grand, here's a condo, it's, you know, whether it's an apartment or whether it's a duplex or whatever it may be, you know, for 100 grand. And the fee is only $100 a month. And people go, well, I can afford that. But that $100 a month does not include what is going to be in 10 years, the cost of replacing the roof. Or what's going to be in 20 years or even 30 years, the cost of replacing the foundation. Or as in the case of this condo in Florida, the cost of replacing, you know, the pool area that had deteriorated that appears to be now, you know, what caused this collapse. And down in Florida, this condo, this Champlain condos, they figured this out. The Homeowners Association figured out that, you know, holy cow, we've got a big problem because they had this inspection back in 2018. And they had just like a month or three ago hit their homeowners with an $80,000 assessment. Everybody who had a condo there had to cough up 80 grand. People were literally borrowing against the value of their condos to pay this $80,000 in so that they could do the repairs to prevent the building from collapsing. Why did they have to pay 80 grand? Because for the 40 years the condo had been there, the condo association monthly fee had not had an extra 30 or $40 added to it that would have built a reserve that would have covered that, those kind of maintenance costs. And why didn't they have that reserve in there? Because the developers were greedy and because it was unregulated. This is deregulation on steroids. And I, you know, I'm telling you, if you've lived in a condo, you know what I'm talking about. At least if you've lived in one that was built more than 10 or 20 years ago and all of a sudden stuff is going wrong and, and the condo association is going, well, we're gonna have to do a $20,000 assessment. We're gonna have to do a $60,000. There's a, a condo near our where we live now where they, they just did, I forget the exact amount, I think it was like $60,000 assessment because they had to reside the, the whole place because you know the siding was rotting. It has been there for 30, 40 years. Well, you know, it, you should, this should not be the case, right? It should be that these are built into the fees all along this time. So, and, and DeSantis down in Florida actually last year, and I, I believe I retweeted this yesterday, it was all over Twitter, DeSantis had a, he called it a deregulation-a-thon, where he invited companies and people to this public meeting to come in and suggest which regulations should be cut. And one of the areas that he suggested in the official announcement was, you know, regulations of developers. Really? We want to deregulate developers even more? when they've been running this scam ever since condos became a you know a big thing back in the in the 60s and 70s it's nuts i mean this is just like i said this is how developers make more money they sell these things more easily and people buy them thinking oh you know my condo fee is not going to be that high and then you know and they just and and they just pass it down basically to future generations of homeowners 30 years later somebody else owns the condo and they're thinking oh i'm only paying 100 bucks a month of my condo fee or 400 dollars a month of my when they're about to get hit with an eighty thousand dollar assessment which is exactly the amount that they used in champlain towers down there anyhow end of rant this is the Tom Hartman Program. There are some things that do require regulation, and frankly, I think this is one of them. Eli, in Los Angeles, listen on KPFK. Hey, Tom, appreciate your show. Still kind of on the condo thing, but from a different angle. So yesterday, you were using the point that uh, the media, you know, was like disaster porn, how much they were talking about this one building. And meanwhile, climate change is overtaking the world. And I just wanted to point out to you, the damage that caused the building to collapse 
was not just the pooling of water in the basement. The rising tides from climate change, salt water is ingressing into the soil. And that's where the concrete foundations are with the rebar. Yep. The salt water gets into the concrete and the rebar breaks it up, breaks it down. Plus, the water is causing the soil, which is around the foundations, to subsidence. You have subsidence of the soil. And, that's, and that is cumulative. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of soil gives way, just like in a landslide. Now you've got an instantaneous collapse pancaking. Yeah, climate scientists have been saying for some time that one of the results of climate change will be that coastal communities are going to start seeing uh, not yeah. just flooding and not just inundation yeah. by water, but they're going to see structural damage being done to buildings. You're going to have, you know, home, homes, high rises, office buildings become uninhabitable. And guess what? That's sure. what just happened. That is what's happening. So it is tied into the, the whole climate change scenario. Right. Not just, yeah. yeah. All right. Absolutely. Anyway. Well said. Thank you very much. Appreciate the call, Eli. Lily in Sacramento. Hey, Lily, what's up? Tom, they asked a question to you. Republicans the Supreme Court argue that the money spent on by corporations on elections is free, free speech. Right. Why is not our right to vote protected by the First Amendment as free speech as well? Well, I think our right to vote should be protected by the at least three places in the Constitution where it references a right to vote. But actually, that's a great point, Lily. I had never thought of that that your right to vote should be considered part of your First Amendment right to speak. You are speaking exactly. about who you want representing you. Yeah, yeah. Lily, you're brilliant. I've got to write that up as an op-ed. I mean, that's, I'll steal your idea. It's, you know, I, and why hasn't the Supreme Court said this? Well, because the Supreme Court, with the exception of maybe two or three 10 to 20 year periods in the entire history of the United States, the Supreme Court has always been dominated by conservatives. And that's why the Supreme Court has always been the most regressive, you know, backward looking, backward behaving institutions of governance, you know, the three branches of our government. But, you know, spot on, Lily. That is, that is, wow, I just learned something. What a great revelation. It's true. I mean, as far as the Supreme Court goes, they are trained as corporate lawyers. So yeah, yeah all, virtually all of the right wingers have been corporate lawyers. You're absolutely right. Lily, I got to run, but thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having, to that extent, practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. It's from his first inaugural speech, explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott. From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use. And those regulations are allowed or disallowed, ultimately, by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also, whether there can be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting, or sometimes persecuting, individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of, it decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. 
Meanwhile, America has ended up mostly since around 1980 with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, quote, about 75 percent of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67 percent support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband, and more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada, and 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, end quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in parts one and two, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, a process called judicial review. This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review, and how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the Court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the Court sided with popular opinion, and how have people successfully challenged the Court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the court to have this much power. Thomas Jefferson was among them. Part one of this book dives into the philosophies that guided the men who drafted the Constitution. It also shows how in 1803, the Supreme Court set itself above Congress and the president with the power to review, strike down, or rewrite laws based on its own lone interpretation of the Constitution. Importantly, the framers of the Constitution gave no consideration to the rights of nature or even of the environment, other than its sheer productive potential to enhance the wealth of the nation. Instead of the environment, when the Constitution was written in the summer and fall of 1787, the new thing in political circles was the idea of property rights for commoners, which had only clearly been articulated outside of the realm of royal prerogatives during the previous few centuries. John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America by Tom Harbin. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman.
And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Rachel Bittekofer, the founder of Strike Pack and a contributor to The Cycle on Substack and a pod host with the election whisperer. Strike Pack, S-T-R-I-K-E-P-A-C.com is the website and the Twitter handle is Rachel. Rachel, can you pronounce your last name for me? I want to make sure I get this right. Sure, I married that monstrosity. <laughs> it's Bittekoffer. Bittekoffer. Okay, thank you. The, the Twitter handle is Rachel, B-I-T-E-C-O-F-E-R. And Rachel, you are just doing God's work. I mean, you predicted the blue wave election of 2020 down to predicting the, as I recall, the exact or maybe one-off number of seats that the Democrats would take in the House of Representatives. <laughs> now you're concerned about 2022. Tell us about this. Yeah, and you know, I also predicted that Donald Trump would lose the 2020 presidential election about yes. 15 months before the election, right? But mm-hmm. one thing I got really wrong in 2020 was how we would Democrats would do down ballot. Uh, they what they should have been doing is cleaning up, right? Uh, not only not losing House seats, but gaining some additional ground, uh, flipping some state legislatures, and also um, picking up uh, a, a clear Senate majority. And as we all know, those things didn't happen. Right. And my, uh, you know, academic and research career has now transitioned into Strike Pack, which is uh, what I'm calling the People's Pack. It's the answer to this idea that Democrats suck at messaging and that we lose winnable elections. And now we're up against a GOP 2.0. It's trying to end democracy as we know it. So we just can't afford any more mistakes. So what specifically is uh, wrong with democratic messaging and how do we fix it? Yeah, so it's really crucial to iterate here that the messaging revolution that I've designed and have a team to implement it's just one aspect of what Strike Pack is arguing we need to be doing, right? Um, you know, the things that should have gotten changed from 2016 to 2020 didn't get done by the uh, status quo, and that's because the status quo is hanging really on to the old way of politics. Um, you know, the GOP not only has adapted, but helped to push and invent the modern um, uh, atmosphere that we're in with hyper-partisanship and polarization. Vote choice is almost completely locked in. Um, you know, we've seen an incredible increasing in strength of that over the last 20 years. And so, therefore, election outcomes come up, uh, become about coalitional turnout, which includes, of course, each party's left or right-leaning independent part of the electorate. So we see uh, people tuning in after Trump got elected from terror. That's a terror that the Democrats never intentionally stoked. Um, you know, they didn't make 2020 uh, a referendum on the Republican Party's governments of COVID and their refusal to pass additional COVID relief aid starting in July, they were holding the HEROES Act. So it's like that kind of strategic, um, you know, coordination planning, um, we need a general for a war and we're in the war, whether we want to be in it or not. They're fighting for keeps and so we must do. So if, if I'm, uh, if I'm participating with you in spreading a democratic message that works as opposed to one that doesn't, what do I say? Right. What do I do? Other than going to strikepack.com yeah. and doing everything I can to help you in the work you're doing, which I'm, I've already yeah, done. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I'll tell everybody listening, this truly is going to rise or fall on the backs of everybody that's listening today and to other um, outreaches, because this is a status quo um, smashing project is basically saying, look, where we need to tweak is not up in the limbs of the tree. It's down in the soil and the roots. We have to de-soil our entire uh, election approach and switch it to what the GOP has been doing to us unassailed, unanswered for years which is a branding war, right? We need to make each uh, election a referendum on the Republican Party's brand and paint that brand in as negative a light as possible. And some of that is, um, you know, as James Carville would tell you, really hanging the Jan 6 insurrection and the potential for coups and, um, you know, anti-democratic movements from what I call a neo-fascist rising GOP majority 
um, you know, some of it's that, but also it's about going and prosecuting the case against Reaganomics. This is not 1980 or 1990. We don't want people running around telling people they're fiscal conservatives because that reinforces the fact that the GOP is better on the economy. And the fact is their track record, as you well know, Tom, I know this is a real area for you, um, is a total uh, poop show, right? It, 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 it's something that we should easily be able to assail and paint Democrats as you know, the party of the middle and working classes, a part, you know, parties that are um, you know, driving economic growth, job growth, Wall Street growth. I mean, it's, it's always better under Democratic administrations. We need to be making that branding case and really coming after the GOP's brand. We're talking with Rachel Bittekofer, the founder of Strike Pack, uh, Strike uh, PAC. StrikePack.com is the website. You can uh, tweet her at Rachel Bittekofer. Um, a great article in Salon, by the way. Uh, she predicted the blue wave. Now she's trying to prevent a big red one uh, that I, I also uh, recommend to people. Uh, Rachel, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote an op-ed suggesting that whenever Democrats refer to the Republican Party or Republicans, they should always uh, insert the word corrupt before that. Uh, it's my little attempt at establishing some branding. Um, thoughts? No, that's exactly right. I mean, think about how coordinated and strategic the GOP is. They have everybody on message all the time, and that includes have, um, House uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. When he talks about Democrats, he always inserts the moniker socialist, right? So they have so successfully branded us because the problem that progressives especially make, and, and it comes from a true place in our hearts, is that we believe everybody's like us. We believe that people are informed and engaged and they care. And the truth is that the electorate has no idea what's happening. They don't understand anything about politics. They don't follow politics, may not even watch the news. And so reality is what gets painted for them when they get outreached by these media and um, messaging machines from the right, right? So we really, what we really need to be doing is branding the Republican Party as, the, as GOP 2.0, right? This is not not your granddaddy's Republican Party. This is a party that's been overrun by extremists. There are basically no moderates left, and this is a statistical, quantitative fact, in the Republican caucus. And every time we're not talking about that, we're doing their bidding. And, and by that I mean, you know, we, they bait us with things like CRT, and we're happy to oblige by a, a month of conversation about the merits of it. That's not what we need to be doing. We need to be going on counter-offense and forcing them to go on defense for the first time. Right. And I think another, another brand for them might be white supremacist. Yo, yes, absolutely. If, if people go on to the salon piece, they're going to find four launch packet ads that I put together with my team that, um, you know, kind of exemplify elements of the strategy and messaging that Strike Pack wants to impose. Uh, again, it's a lot more than that. It's about delivery, too. We're, we're really woefully inadequate of reaching voters where they are, which is in the digital space. Um, but in any case, Fuse highlights the fact that, the, you know, the modal position in the Republican Party is that Joe Biden stole the election, is an illegitimate president. And they're telling us outright that what they want to do is return Donald Trump, a would-be dictator, into power. Right. He tried mm. not only with the armed insurrection to stage a physical coup, but he used the Justice Department and tried to get the Justice Department to keep him in power. Like this is a five alarm fire that we're having. And we need to be telling average people that because they don't know what's going on. Right. We're talking with uh, Rachel, Rachel Bittekoffer, uh, the founder of StrikePack.com. Rachel, uh, uh, final question here. You predicted, as, as we, you know, as I mentioned in the opening here, you accurately predicted pretty much uh, most of what happened, at least at a federal level in the, in the election of 2020. Um, based on the way that you're compiling metrics and data, when you look at that same data set or, you know, the, the June 2021 version of that data set, what do you see for 2022? I always, I, I mean, I built a reputation of telling people what they need to know and not what they want to hear. And here's the hard, cold truth. We have no idea what's going to happen to Democratic turnout now that Trump is gone. Trump was a natural turnout catalyst. He could have been even better if the Democrats had intentionally tapped into that angst and done what the GOP does, which is make every election about Obama and Pelosi, and now it's the squad and Sanders, right? Uh, so we did not do that. But now that national natural catalyst is gone. 
And if we don't find, um, you know, build something that is going to allow us to frame the election in those referendum terms and tap back into the angst that should definitely still be there in every voter, because we're in worse position in terms of our democracy today than we were back on January 20th, 2020, um, then we're going to be in real trouble, Tom. So, like, to me, the barometer that I'm watching is enthusiasm. How many Democrats relative to Republicans say they're excited to vote? And, you know, some early indicators of that are concerning, like in California, where uh, Republicans are twice as likely to say they're excited about the recall. Wow. Rachel Bittekofer, the website strikepack.com. You can check it out. I just retweeted or I just tweeted uh, while we were talking, Rachel, the uh, Salon article about you. And so if anybody wants to see that also, they can just look at my Twitter feed. I should have tagged you in that. I'll, I'll do that as well. <laughs> Rachel, thanks so much for dropping by. So it's much. great talking with you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. You too. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. So here she is, one of the nation's leading experts on elections and election outcomes, saying we've got to get our act together and we've got to go after these people. Paul in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? I think that Citizens United is really a big, one of the biggest roots of the problems that we face today, to legally bribe politicians. Yeah, that was my op-ed uh, today. That's and, and it really started oh, actually in 1976 in a Supreme Court decision called Buckley. And then uh, two years later in 78 in a decision called Bilotti, the Supreme Court legalized first billionaires in 76 and then corporations in 78 owning politicians. And now you've got companies like Toyota. I just tweeted about Toyota. They're saying that they're going to continue giving money to, to Republicans who want to tear down our republic, you know, who support the insurrection. And I'm like, OK, I've you know, I've owned a Toyota car for the last more than a decade now. It ain't ever going to happen again. That's it. I'm over it. Yeah. And so I, I don't understand why. And I appreciate the fact that you put that out there today. Like I say, it's the root of the problems. The, the corporations, first of all, suing a corporation does not change their behavior. They have the money. Right. I believe that by repealing Citizens United, we could hold people, the corporate executives, who either held back the truth or boldface lied about science and as to the harmful effects of their products. The petroleum industry, for sure. Roundup, for sure. Yeah. They, uh, Here's the thing, Paul. When the Supreme Court in 73 did their Roe v. Wade decision, it kicked off an enormous pushback that the Republican Party captured in 1980 when both Reagan and Bush decided to go from being pro-choice to being pro-forced pregnancy. And now, you know, it's, it's like a, a thing, right? The opposition to Roe v. Wade. When the Supreme Court doubled down on their Buckley decision in 2010 with Citizens United, there should have been a widespread eruption of rage coming out of the Democratic Party and progressives. I agree. And we have failed in that. And I, you know, I've written two books about this, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and The Betrayal of America is the most recent one, you know, ranting about these two, well, three now, Supreme Court decisions. I guess if you add McCutcheon, four to Supreme Court decisions, that was in 2013, where the court has basically said American democracy is now officially for sale. And whoever has the most money has the most speech. Whoever has the most money gets to decide the fate and future of America. It is the biggest challenge to do anything about climate change. It's the biggest challenge to do anything about racism and white supremacy. It's the biggest challenge to doing anything about, frankly, anything meaningful in this republic that might reduce the profitability of billionaires and big corporations or might reduce the ability of the Republican Party to hold on to power. I mean, they're even now you know, going after trans people and other people in the LGBTQ community not because it affects their bottom line uh, specifically, but because it gives them power, which they can then use to strengthen their bottom line by fighting things like climate change. And I don't think the average American gets this, Paul. I don't think they do. And it's a tragedy. It's an absolute disaster. Anyhow, Paul, I got to run. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the call. Yeah, good talking to you. This is a BFD, as, uh, <laughs> as Vice President Biden might have said back in the day. We'll be back with uh, more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Stick around.
And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. And today we're reading from Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. This is Chapter 11. It's titled Corporate Control of Politics, page 170. During the bruising primary election season of 2008, a right-wing group put together a 90-minute hit job on Hillary Clinton and wanted to run it on TV stations in strategic states. Federal Election Commission ruled that the advertisements for the documentary were actually campaign ads and thus fell under the restrictions on campaign spending of the McCain-Feingold Act and thus stopped them from airing. Corporate contributions to campaigns have been repeatedly banned and in various ways since 1907, when Republican President Teddy Roosevelt pushed through the Tillman Act. Citizens United, the right-wing group, sued to the Supreme Court with right-wing hitman and former Reagan Solicitor General Ted Olson, the man who argued Bush's side of Bush v. Gore, as their lead lawyer. This new case, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, presented the best opportunity for the Roberts Court to use its five-vote majority to completely rewrite the face of American politics rolling us back to the pre-1907 era of the robber barons. And if there was one man to do it, it was John Roberts. Although he was handsome with a nice smile and photogenic young children, Roberts was no friend to average working Americans. If anything, he was the most radical judicial activist appointed to the court in more than a century. He'd worked most of his life in the interest of the rich and powerful and was chomping at the bit for a chance to turn more of America over to his friends. As Jeffrey Tubin wrote in The New Yorker, quote, In every major case since he became the nation's 17th Chief Justice, Roberts has sided with the prosecution over the defendant, the state over the condemned, the executive branch over the legislative, and the corporate defendant over the individual plaintiff. Even more than Scalia, who has embodied judicial conservatism during a generation of service on the Supreme Court, Roberts has served the interests and reflected the values of the contemporary Republican Party, end of quote. And the fastest way the modern Republican Party could recover its power over the next decade was to immediately clear away all impediments to unrestrained corporate participation in electoral politics. If a corporation likes a politician, it can ensure that he is elected every time. If it becomes upset with a politician, it can carpet bomb her district and with a few million dollars worth of ads and politically destroy her. In the Citizens United case, the Roberts Court listened to arguments and took briefs and even discussed it among themselves as if they were going to make a decision. But instead of deciding the case on the relatively narrow grounds on which it had originally been argued, whether a single part of a single piece of legislation, in this case McCain-Feingold, was unconstitutional, the court asked for it to be re-argued in September 2009 and asked that the breadth of the arguments be expanded to re-examine the rationales for Congress to have any power to regulate so-called free speech by corporations. In this, they were going along with a request from Theodore B. Olson, who argued Bush v. Gore and would not now not just look at this narrow case, but go back nearly 20 years to re-examine, perhaps overturn their own ruling in the Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, where the court held that it was constitutional for Congress to pass limits on corporate political activities as well as its decision in 2003 to uphold McCain-Feingold as constitutional. The setup for this 2010 decision came in June of 2007 in the Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life case, in which the Robert Courts ruled that the FCC could not prevent Wisconsin Right to Life from running ads just because it was a corporation. The idea of Congress passing laws that limited corporate free speech was clearly horrifying to both Roberts and Scalia. Scalia went after the 1990 Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, in which the then Rehnquist court had ruled that the Michigan Chamber of Commerce was limited in its free speech in a political campaign because it was a corporation. Scalia complained, this Austin was the only pre-McConnell case that this court had ever permitted the government to restrict political speech based on the corporate identity of the speaker. Austin upheld state restrictions on corporate independent expenditures, and God forbid the statute had been modeled after the federal statute the BCRA 203 amended. End of quote. The Austin case Scalia concluded, with four others nodding, was a significant departure from ancient First Amendment principles. In my view, it was wrongly decided. Scalia was quoted at length from opinions in the Gross Gene v. American Press 1936 case, In Scalia's words, quote, holding that corporations are guaranteed the freedom of speech and of press, safeguarded 
by the due process of law clause of the 14th Amendment. He also quoted the 1986 Pacific Gas and Electric Company versus Public Utility Commission of California case. The identity of the speaker is not decisive in determining whether speech is protected. Corporations and other associations like individuals contribute to the discussion, debate, and the dissemination of information and ideas that the First Amendment seeks to foster. The bottom line for Scalia was, quote, the principle that such advocacy is at the heart of the First Amendment's protection and is indispensable to decision-making in a democracy is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual. The book, Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. Don in Watertown, South Dakota. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I was thinking about what you said about branding the Republicans. And I was thinking the letters GOP could probably stand for gutless, obstructive Philistines. Yeah, or greedy old party. Yeah, but I mean, you'd have to you'd have to explain what Philistines means to Republicans. Oh, yeah, you know, that or the average American. Yeah, lack, sadly, complete lack of complete lack of integrity or honor, or or doing things the right way. So yeah. that just crossed my mind. Well, it's a good one, Don. It's a good one. And, and I know that, you know, I see people using or characterizing the Republican Party in different ways. The key, though, as Rachel Bittekofer pointed out, is that the entire Democratic Party, from national to local, from the president to the dog catcher, need to get on the same page in terms of branding the Republicans. And, you know, the Republicans have an infrastructure to make sure that that happens, and they have a way of enforcing conformity. The Democrats don't and it is biting us in the butt. Don, thank you. I love it. Well said. Ivan in Bartlett, Illinois. Hey, Ivan, what's on your mind today? The Republican Party is no longer the GOP. They are now the GQP. That's a good one. I started writing uh, on Facebook and Twitter. I call them the GQP cult. Yeah. And when you're writing, don't put the G in capital letters. Put the G in small letters, Q in capital letter, and P in small letter, because sometimes Q looks like an O. Right, right. Yeah, well, so I'm calling them the GQP cult. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one, too, Ivan. A lot of great ideas here today. Thank you. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I think that right now, I don't believe Kamala Harris is doing an adequate job Kamala. on the immigration. Kamala, yeah. And I'm a Democrat. And I'm looking at this, and I think this is the straw that will break the camel's back in the next election. That if we don't get comprehensive immigration back on the table and get the Republicans engaged in this one way or another, that it's going to be to our detriment as Democrats. I don't disagree with you, Randy, but the Republicans are never going to go along with anything that might help America for which Democrats or the Biden administration could take credit. Ignoring immigration, and this is my point, is that they have said this story that these immigrants are paying $7,000 to get to or get across the border. When people in America, in our sinking ship, as it appears at times, are living hand to mouth and fearing eviction. It, I don't know where, where you got that seven thousand dollar number from, Randy. Well, that's, I've, that's I've absurd. heard that several times. That's, I've heard it several times. Yeah. Well, the, I, the, you're not finding poor people in Guatemala who are who are coughing up seven grand. It, you know, yes, there are some coyotes who transport people, and there are high end coyotes who will smuggle people into the country as well. But the vast majority of people who come here are not paying anybody. They are poor, 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 and they are literally fleeing for their lives. They are terrorized. How, 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 do, these, how do these poor people get the Joe Biden t-shirts then after when this new wave started? Uh, some Republican handed it to them. Uh, you know, Randy, yeah. I, you know, I'm sorry, Randy. I, you know, we've talked many times, but, you know, take that racist crap someplace else, please. Christopher in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Christopher, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. I have two things on my mind. One is that we were locking down because of the heat. And guess what movie was available? Soylent Green. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Think about that. Flash from the past. 
Exactly. And and also, but but it was the the year that it was happening was 2022. Oh, really? In the novel? Yeah. That's that's yes. where, in the movie. That's where it takes place. That's in the next mo- year. In the movie? Yes. You couldn't breathe the air. People, the population explosion. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, all kinds of issues that seem to be hitting today. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it was just. I said, God, this was a perfect storm for that film to be on HBO Max, and I would suggest your listeners watch that film because it was just amazing. We're going through all this right now. Almost, I'm not sure know. I ever actually watched the movie. I remember it happening. It was like in the 70s, wasn't it? Man, it was a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, Charlton Heston, you know. But you can see it on Prime or HBO Max, but it's, gonna, it's, it's being... Soiling. It, so it was just amazing that that happened. And, and one other thing. Quickly. Should you be vaccinated to vote? <laughs> yeah, that would make them crazy, wouldn't it? But uh, I got no problem with that. Zombies do that. Yeah, Christopher, I got to run, but thank you. Yeah, we need vaccine passports. Maybe not to vote, but certainly if you're going to hang out in my space, I want to know whether it's on an airplane or a bus or just, you know, in a restaurant. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, I know we don't like to revisit the Trump administration, but I really think it's worth it in this the context of revelations at the Lafayette Square. Remember the Lafayette Square incident? Oh, yeah. And the protesters, the interaction between Trump and Milley are really remarkable. And I think everybody should take note of that because, look, general officers generally don't cede power. Right? And Trump tried to put Milley in charge of basically usurping con- the Constitution, of basically turning America into an autocracy. Yeah, well, here's here's yeah. exactly what happened for people who don't know what we're talking about. The, the Lafayette Square incident is was the Trump Bible photo op where there were peaceful protesters in a public area on public property, which is entirely allowed by the First Amendment of the Constitution. And Donald Trump ordered it cleared. Bill Barr visited the site. Moments later, they started attacking protesters with batons, beating them, and tear-gassed them, and cleared the area so that Trump could walk in in there and wave his Bible around. And it turns out that Trump had asked Milley to use the military, which is illegal. You know, I mean, this is the, the Posse Comitatus Act. The military may not turn their guns on civilians, but Trump had ordered Milley to do this, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Milley said no. And Trump said, you must do this because I'm the president. And Milley said, we've got a room full of lawyers here. Somebody tell him that he's wrong. And somebody did. And apparently it was Bill, maybe it was Bill Barr. I'd, I'd, I'd have to go back and read the story. But Dave is absolutely spot on on that. And that's how close we came. If Milley had ordered the military to start playing law enforcement functions in the United States, it would have been the end of our democracy. Or it very could have easily been, or at least the first stage in the end of our democracy. Dave in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, Dave. What's on your mind today? Hey, I just read that um, United Airlines had a record order of airline jets, which I find sadly ironic that the Northwest is is setting new record temperatures. I I wonder how historians are going to record this. You know, the sad irony is is that there should be private, you know, private transportation such as bullet trains and you know, big expansion of public transportation. And yet, you know, no one, it, it's 2021 and no one has realized what we need to do about climate change. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us have realized it, but we literally have an entire political party that is denying global warming. And that, that point does not get made often enough on television, that these guys are lying through their teeth to all of us on behalf of the billionaire class. And it is wrong. It is criminal. Thank you for that call. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, Tom. So I'm going to ask you a question here, but I, I need to weave my point by first answering your question about the economy and something about yesterday. So in the last 40 years, the rich have stolen $30 trillion from the United States. And that's why we have a $30 trillion national the tax base, starting with the Reagan tax cut. They haven't paid for what it costs to operate this country. That's correct. And yeah. And so what has been our operating costs have, have essentially been borrowed because when Ronald Reagan took office, the national debt was $800 billion. That's what our military budget is now, was the entirety of the national debt in 1981 when Ronald Reagan took office. 
$800 billion was the debt that the country had for the 205 years or whatever it was that we right. were a nation. Right? Yeah, that's eight-tenths uh, of $1 billion for people who don't do the math fast in their head. It's not even, not, not, or $1 trillion, it's not even $1 trillion was the debt when Reagan came in. And he, by right. the way, when Reagan left, it was $2.4 trillion. Yeah, and then after Bush left, it was $3.2 trillion. They quadrupled the national debt. Right, in 12 years. Yeah, that's what Reagan Bush did. Okay, and so uh, I don't care how people want to slice it, but the, the debt in the last four years under Donald Trump, they added $9.5 trillion. Be, uh, so the, the rich are just basically, and, and this goes to the point of uh, Madison's, uh, the uh, Federalist 10, where he talks about uh, we cannot Factions. allow the corporations to become so rich, wealthier than the government, and that's what's happened. They have it's gotten to the threshold. Well, now the corp, the rich and the corporations are actually more as powerful, and they don't have to have as much to be as powerful as the government. They just have have to have enough, and that's what's become. The, where we are, okay. So then we come to yesterday, you had a guest, uh, Rachel, I can't remember her last name, was talking about what Bitter are the Cofer. Democrats going to do? And I've always said, they need to take a Promethean approach. And for people who don't know this, look up the myth of Prometheus. It means a, a daringly creative approach. The, the Republicans have changed the, 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 um, the tactic from fighting for the globular middle to a polarized race. And in a polarization, you know, you have basically roughly things will hang equally at both sides, and then you just have to capture the snapshot where, uh, in the steady state, it's more on your side at one time or another. But this is the question I have for you, Tom. Oh, be, be, before you answer. get to the question, Paul, let me just restate my understanding of what you just said, just in the event I got it wrong. Um, and that is that somewhere in the last 40 years, most likely toward the end of the Reagan administration, um, but uh, certainly with Bush and, and the Willie Horton ads in 92, somewhere in that period of time, the Republican Party determined that basically the only way they could win elections was to start tearing America, to pit Americans against each other, to create division and hatred between Americans against Americans. And that has been their strategy ever since and it has reached its logical conclusion now where people with Trump bumper stickers are running people off the road where they tried to run you know the Kamala Harris bus off the road down in Texas now there's a lawsuit around this uh, where they invaded the Capitol building where you know if if, if you wear a uh, you know a, uh, an F trunk Trump t-shirt you're, you're likely to get, I mean it's just it's you know all this stuff am I saying what you said yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm just saying that they, they know that the traditional uh, political strategy of fighting for the globular middle, the, you know, the, right. the, they can't win. Giving people so what they, they want. Polarize. Right. Yeah. So instead they, they, they tear polarize people apart. It. Yeah, you polarize it. You can, you, can catch it at, you can catch the polarization at a snapshot in time, hopefully on election day, yeah. uh, where it, it falls in your favor. And with the Electoral College, you got a pretty good bet of doing that. So my question is, I couldn't think of the answer. That what could... Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer say that would make Mitch McConnell say, you wouldn't dare. You wouldn't dare. We're going to have the filibuster. I can't think of it because that, that's the Promethean approach. That's the Promethean question that I'm saying is that what could Joe Biden say that would make Mitch McConnell say, you wouldn't dare. I can think of lots of things that Mitch McConnell would say that Joe Biden would say you wouldn't dare. But we have, that's how I know we are losing because I can't think of anything that Joe Biden would say that would, Mitch McConnell would find to be a threat. We're going to repeal 40 years of, you know, three administrations that engaged in massive, Republican administrations that engaged in massive tax cuts because the results of the experiment are in and all it did was make billionaires, I, you know, I mean, what are these guys doing with their money? You know, they're buying 400 foot mega yachts and, and blasting themselves into outer space. Uh, and, yeah, and that money taken, should be in the pockets the of working of class Americans. Yes, they've taken all the money out of the economy. That's why they had to borrow the money, and that's why the right. economy is going so into the So we're going to take our money back. Yeah, Richard Wolf comes in and tells us every week. Yeah. That, that's what they've done, is, and Madison wrote about that. Is if you take, that's why they should, wealth should be taxed, because that's money that's just pooling. That's like bad health. That's like blood pooling in your feet. Yeah. You've got to have 
the money circulated, and they're not, uh, they're not, if they won't spend it, they need to have it taxed. Yeah, so that the which is Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, which would definitely get a you don't dare from, from Mitch McConnell. Paul, interesting right. question, a Promethean issue. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club, our book today is How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property by Ben G. Price, with a blurb on the back from some guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, One Right to Rule Them All, The Dark Side of Property. Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America, nations that emulate its governing principles, are governed by a dictatorship of property. Is that plutocracy? Sure. But it goes deeper than that. The U.S. Constitution, as it was written and later interpreted by the Supreme Court, hijacked democratic rights that American revolutionaries thought they had won. The Federalists developed a whole system of law that serves the interests of wealth. Elements of that system include the following. State constitutions untethered from their revolutionary moorings. International trade agreements that supersede local, state, and federal laws. Regulations administered by an unrepresentative bureaucracy. Political parties that gerrymander legislative districts so that they can choose their voters rather than allowing voters to choose their representatives. Corporate property that the Supreme Court has declared to be persons with Bill of Rights protections. Federal and state statutes that privatize public governance and prohibit democratic limits on the uses of private fortunes. And local governments declared to be property of the state and made unavailable to communities for municipal lawmaking. We live deep within an undemocratic matrix of law that masquerades as a democratic republic while it legalizes an aristocracy of wealth. The U.S. Constitution was written by men who came from a uniformly privileged class. Charles Beard argued this point in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Beard analyzed the economic interests of those who met in secret to overturn the Articles of Confederation and concluded that the Federalists were motivated by economic self-interest to establish a form of government that would protect their wealth against an excess of democracy, as Alexander Hamilton put it. The Federalists who replaced the Articles with the U.S. Constitution were not fully aligned with the liberating agenda of commoners who risked their lives to throw off the hierarchical chains of Great Britain. They were wealthy men educated in British law with opinions that harmonized with aristocratic sentiments. The authors of the U.S. Constitution are often called the Founding Fathers. Popular history lumps the Federalist counter-revolutionaries in with the likes of Thomas Paine, who with this firebrand writings against monarchy, nobility, and special privilege for the few, inspired the people to demand independence. Popular culture counts the Federalists as American revolutionaries no less fervent for liberty than the men whose ideas of leveling the social class system inspired American farmers and day laborers to pick up their muskets and take on the redcoats. This conflation of the Federalist counter-revolutionaries with those whose spirit of 76 is reflected in the Declaration of Independence and absent from the U.S. Constitution is a troubling reminder that popular history too often preserves false memories. What's the evidence that the Federalists intended a Constitution that weaponizes law to protect the accumulation of property and raise wealth and out of reach of public governance? Well, to begin with, their own words were recorded in Philadelphia in 1787 by James Madison and Robert Yates. Damningly, that record had, was held secret until every delegate to the clandestine conclave had died and the Constitution they wrote had been the law of the land for two generations. We have that evidence and it tells the tale I'll share in Chapter 2. We also have the product of their cleverness to consider. The Federalists established a quasi-monarchical judiciary. Politically appointed judges wielded the power to veto any legislation that departs from the Federalists' original intent to protect wealthy accumulation from democratic oversight. We have the arguments of the anti-federalists who called out the would-be American aristocrats for betraying the revolution. If not for them, we would not have the first 10 amendments to the federalist document, the Bill of Rights, which many identify as the soul of the U.S. Constitution. More immediate evidence that the original intent of the U.S. Constitution was to immunize possession of unearned property from public regulation can be found in the antisocial way the document is interpreted by the courts and how it operates on society today. Here's my argument in a nutshell. We are faced with social, political, and environmental problems that resist resolution because law empowers a wealthy minority to govern based on priorities often at odds with the general welfare. The Constitution and its interpretation by the courts amounts to an arsenal of weaponized law able to deliver special privileges to a propertied class. Certain legal mechanisms let those seeking to profit at the public expense block policies 
that compete with their interests. These legal doctrines operate by a two-step process. First, they remove democratic rights from the public sphere and deposit them in concentrated accumulations of property. The oddity of attaching legal rights to property itself rather than to people roared into public consciousness with the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling that affirmed corporate property's personhood and free speech rights. Although the ruling shocked the conscience of average Americans, it was not the first time the court had vested civil rights within inert property. Nor were corporations the first type of property to be given legal rights. The second step is for property imbued with rights to deliver those rights as an extra layer of legal privilege to the property owner. When civil and human rights are deposited in property, that property is placed beyond the authority of the people to govern how it is used by its owner. This nullifies the majority's ability to decide directly or through elected representatives what public policy will be. As a result, we aren't allowed to resolve issues of immediate concern to every community. Even when we understand what needs to be done, we're often blocked. And then he goes through the whole list. Benji Price writes, How Wealth Rules the World. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.